If you guys have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, why don't you guys turn over to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. We um, have spent the last few weeks, um, actually this is our third week now in Acts chapter 2, which doesn't bode well for the length of this study, does it? Um, And we're going to spend next week in chapter 2 as well. But, you know, this is a a really a neat chapter, I think, um, for a lot of reasons. Last week we had a couple of guests. We had... uh, a friend of Tessa's, Katie, was here to help lead worship, and then um, Scott Purdue from Crew. We appreciated that, and because of that, I didn't feel we could maybe give the the text as much um, time as we we should. And so, anyways, we're going to look at at um, Acts chapter two. We're going to look at verses twenty two through uh, forty one. I'm just going to go ahead and read it, and then we're going to pray, and we're going to go from there. Um, so, Acts chapter two, verses twenty two, and then through um, 41. It says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, who crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at the right hand that I may not be be shaken. Verse 26, therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul in Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may not Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Verse 30, being therefore a prophet in knowing that God was sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of of, of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, And of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. No, or now <clears throat> when they heard this, this they, were, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the glory of the Holy Spirit for the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Verse 40, and with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Verse 41, and so those who received his words were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for this day. I thank you for the things that you've you've done for us. God, I thank you for this passage that we just read, arguably the greatest sermon ever preached from lips 
other than yours, Lord. Um, I pray that as we, as we look at this, as we try and just grab a few little aspects of it, that you take this, that you take your word, and that you cement it to our souls, that you, that you use your words to stir life change in us, that you tenderize us and, and help us to be observant to the world in which we live, the things going on around us, and your great mercy and your great love. Lord, I pray that this morning that you give me your, your words. I pray that we remain faithful to what you said through Peter. Lord, I pray you give me your passion. I pray that, that we all, we all, every one of us, myself included, that we this morning leave church differently, that we leave church this morning with um, a great passion to fulfill the mission that I believe you gave our church to see souls saved and lives changed. Lord, we love you and we thank you for all the things that you've done. In your son's beautiful and precious and holy name we pray, amen. Okay, so if you haven't picked up on this yet, I'm not feeling the, the, the greatest. And, um, and so you guys are going to be the recipients of sniffles. You're going to hear me go, and it'll be magnified because it's going through the speakers. And I'm going to try not to drip as I speak. I didn't take medicine this morning because I was afraid of what I would say. I was afraid I'd break into tongues and there'd be nobody here to interpret it and we'd all be in trouble. Um, and so here we go. Last week, we tried to set the stage a little bit with this, with this sermon. We talked about Peter and you know, Jesus has ascended into heaven and, uh, and the disciples were up in, in an upper room. It may or may not have been the same upper room that they had the Last Supper with Jesus. More than likely, this upper room takes place in um, one of the chambers in the temple. And, and as the disciples are gathering together, as they've been waiting, uh, it's been 10 days since Jesus had ascended into heaven and made a promise that the Holy Spirit was coming. And the Holy Spirit comes. We read that in Acts chapter 1. Big sounds of winds, the tongues of, of fire and all that kind of stuff ascending upon the disciples, and we see this Holy Spirit, and they, and they do break out into tongues. They begin speaking these other languages, known languages, and, and the noise of those winds and these things that were being said attracted the crowd. And, and remember, this is during a, a festival time, uh, a festival of the different feasts, and this is the Feast of the First Fruits. And so it, Jerusalem, and specifically the temple, it was busy. I mean, there are a lot of people there gathered in the courtyards, and all of a sudden they hear this stuff, and it draws this crowd over to where the disciples were. And, um, and through, I believe, the Holy Spirit's prodding, Peter, who, who right there kind of becomes the mouthpiece of the disciples, stands up. And he begins to preach a, a sermon which, as I said in my prayer, is arguably the, the greatest sermon preached aside from what Jesus said. And, and, um, and so this morning, we, we, last week, we kind of looked at the introduction. We looked at those uh, first few verses, and, you know, sometimes preachers will go in their, their kind of sermon structure. They may start with an illustration, an opening, and they go to their three points, and they have their conclusion. And, um, and so Peter, to a certain extent, kind of does the same thing. He starts out with this introduction, and the introduction really was, hey, you guys are all gathered. There's all these murmurings. What's going on? The question, you know, that you guys are all struggling with is, what causes great noise? What caused you to, to speak these languages? And so Peter answers that question, and he uses um, the Old Testament prophet Joel in there. And, and we, we saw that in uh, verses 17 uh, through 21, and where, he, where, where Peter directly quotes Joel. And then from there, he transitions into, this is the question that you guys had, but here's what I want us to think about now. And, and he goes 
and he focuses in on Jesus from verses 22 really through the end of the, the message. And one of the things I think is if for us to try and boil through this dynamic, great, deep message, um, we lack the time and I lack the ability. But what I, I want us to just kind of see a, a few highlighted points that, that Peter that we see either in Peter or things that Peter said. The first part we, we saw last week, but because it was the introduction to this message, I want us to, to, to grab a hold of him. We'll see this even in what we read today was that Peter employed the Word of God. Like Peter used God's Word. I don't know if you guys are like me, but when we have those opportunities to share or, or witness to somebody, a, a non-believer, how, how many of you guys struggle with that? Anybody bold enough to say that? Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. So to, to talk about Jesus and in, in, in whatever the circumstance, maybe it's a family member, maybe it's um, a coworker, maybe it's a stranger, whatever. One of the things I hope we can see is not only is this a great sermon, but I think we also see this really great way in which we can share our faith with non-believers, just like Peter is doing in this courtyard. And the first thing that we see is Peter like takes them to the Bible. Like he uses God's word. Again, I think today we, we so often look for these ultra creative ways that we feel like we have to, um, to, to paint a picture in a way that everyone's going to understand it. We, we think that, that the way to reach people is through our creativity. I, I think today we've, we've seen, and, and some of this is good, we've seen a, a great focus placed on apologetics, you know, the defense of the Bible, the defense of our faith. And I think that is good. I think those are, are, are worthy things to, to learn apologetics. But at the heart of it all, I believe this, that, that God's word is the key. And if we can take people to God's word, I believe that the Holy Spirit then begins to reveal that and understand and allow people to understand that. Uh, sometimes I think we forget that, that when it comes to sharing our faith, it's not our job to convince people. And for those of us who raise our hands saying that I struggle with that, probably one of the greatest reasons we struggle with that is we hold on to this idea that I have to be able to convince that person to believe, right? Like, like if I mess something up, if I don't say something right, I'm the one that has to convince them to believe. And the reality is this, the Holy Spirit's the one who convinces. We just get to be partners with him. Um, and, and for those of you who, who have the opportunity to share your faith the first place I would encourage you guys to do is to take them to the Bible, to show them the Bible. You know, Peter didn't get up there before these, this crowd and try and use some great intellectual way to reach them. He simply went to something that they were somewhat familiar with. He began to quote scripture. He, he quoted Joel. We see in this, throughout this sermon, he, he quotes Joel. He, he goes to three different Psalms. And so he's continually going back to the Bible. He's continually going back. And, and that, I think, tells us two things about that. One, that we ought to go to the Bible when we share our faith. But two, in order for us to go to the Bible, we have to know the Bible, don't we? Like we have to know where to find John 3.16. We have to, to read God's Word. You know, I don't know, again, about you, but I find it like this. I find, in theory, one of the easiest things in a spiritual discipline ought to be to just sit down and read my Bible. Like again, if I step back and think, like that should be very simple, right? Whether it's in the morning, whether it's in the evening, whether it's in the middle of the day at lunch, it should be simple to just sit down and read the Bible. But it's not, at least in my life, always so simple. 
That things happen, schedules get busy, you end up staying up later the night before than you wish you had when your alarm goes off the following morning, right? And so rather than getting up and maybe reading your Bible, you just hit snooze two, three, four, five, six times until your wife reaches over, hits you, unplugs the alarm, and tells you to get up, right? Steve knows what I'm talking about. Um, and so then our day doesn't start. So with, with great intentions, I was going to read my Bible that morning, but for whatever reason, I didn't. I got, I'm behind schedule, so then I leave, get off to work, and then I'm going to do it at lunchtime, but then two things at work pop up, projects or whatever, meetings or something that takes away that. And so the idea is, well, then I'm going to come home, and, and, and when I get home, I'll do it, except you come home and you have to help your children with vocabulary words or math projects or history homework or whatever it is. And then you think, well, I will do it after we eat, after the kids get bathed and after they go to bed. And then after all that takes place, you take that deep breath, which is typically in my life followed by snores, right? Like life gets busy, doesn't it? It gets hard. And so what, what seems like should be something really simple, like, hey, I just, I understand I need to take them to God's Word, so I'm going to need to read God's Word. And reading God's Word isn't that hard, except if we're all being honest, it is. So we see here in that first part, in that first introduction that we, we kind of went over last week, the importance of God's Word. Second point I, I think we need to understand is this. All this occurred over Pentecost. All this occurred over the Holy Spirit coming. And while Peter used that as his introduction, while Peter used that to grab a hold of the attention of the people, that was not the primary point. That was not the primary message. It wasn't about necessarily the Holy Spirit. He turned the whole message central around Jesus. And so I want us to just look at a few things. I think first, even in our our way is, is if God opens up those doors of, of sharing our faith, of witnessing to people, yes, we take them to the Bible. And two, we have to take them to Jesus. We see that beginning really in verse 22. It says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs of God. Like, this is, it sounds simple, but, but, but Peter makes a point to identify who this was, who he's going to talk about. He says, this is Jesus. Now, today in our day, in our, our life, when we say Jesus, most people understand that we're talking about Jesus Christ. But in this day, that, that name Jesus was a pretty common name. The Greek, this is a Greek word adopted from the Hebrew name Joshua. And so more than likely in all the different communities, there's all sorts of Jesuses running around. So it wasn't an abnormal name. This was a very common name in his day, like John today. And so he goes and, and, and identifies him. This is Jesus, but it's not just Jesus. This is Jesus of Nazareth. And it's not just Jesus of Nazareth, but this is the same Jesus who was affirmed and tested by God. And, and, and he, he showed that through these signs, through these wonders. Peter's very specific in this to, to talk about the incarnation of Jesus, that Jesus was man. I, I, again, if I were you and your Bibles, if you mark it, I would mark a man. I would underline that to remember that this was Jesus. Yes, he was the son of God, but he was fully man. Like he left heaven. He came to earth. He was born that, that first Christmas morning as a little baby, probably with little baby fat, wrapped up in a little towel that would cry 
Right? They're just like babies do today. This is the same thing. And sometimes we, we forget about this. Like, no, but this was Jesus. He was, he was fully God, but he became fully man. And Peter shows that. He says, listen, this, is, this was Jesus of Nazareth. The guy, this is the guy that you guys all knew. This is the guy you came and saw. You guys witnessed these messages. You witnessed these signs, these wonders. You saw him heal people. You saw him bring people back from the dead. You saw him feed thousands. This is the same guy. I think today, we, if we went in our community and knocked door to door, surveyed people, and if we asked the question, do you believe in God? we would probably get an overwhelmingly high percentage of people that say yes. But I am convinced uh, more and more that we live in a country that worships a generic God. And while they say they believe in God, there's very little substance to that God. In fact, the way they would describe that God, the way they envision that God is to be somebody that they want. It's a different story when you can say, do you believe in God? But when you bring Jesus into the equation the conversation typically changes. If you turn to somebody and you quote John 14, 6, and you say, hey, listen, do you believe what Jesus said is true? Do you believe that, that God is, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him? Do you think, do you believe that that is the only way, that Jesus is the only way? That conversation typically changes. I think it's so critical that we use God's word. I think it's so critical that we bring the people, that we bring those around us, that we even in this church, that we, as we speak, as we, as we teach God's word, that we always make it about Jesus. But he didn't just use the Bible. He didn't just talk about Jesus, but he also, in a very daring fashion, talked to the people there about their sin. L- understand this. So in this, um, we see in verse 20, 23 says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you, like again, underline that, underline that you crucified him. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Folks, 50 days prior to this sermon, Many of those who were gathered in that area, many of those who were gathered listening to, 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 to Peter speak, they were present throughout the trial of Jesus. These were the same people, many of which, who were standing there yelling, crucify him. And so when Peter stands up and says, listen, this great Jesus, this, this Jesus of Nazareth, this one that, that did all these wonders by God, you crucified him. You killed him. And he's literally pointing to the people who did. That's powerful, isn't it? I mean, none of us like our nose rubbed in sin, do we? And I don't prescribe to say that we need to rub everyone's nose in all their sins. If we did and you started with me, you guys wouldn't have enough time to get to anybody else. But I also know this, that again, for us to call something sin in the world that we live in is not easy and not popular, is it? I mean, for us to, to proclaim something is wrong when somebody else is doing it is not received well. And so the easy thing in the life in our day-to-day action is just to avoid those conversations, if we can avoid the, the aspect of sin. Because nobody likes to be told that they're wrong. Nobody likes to be told that they're doing something they ought not be doing. 
And when we do that, we're typically called judgmental, intolerant, whatever. Fill in the blank. And folks, I, as humble as I can be before you, do not want to stand in front of anybody being judgmental. But there's no place in Scripture, at least that I've read, where the Bible tells us to avoid talking about sin, to avoid uncovering sin. It's not easy. It's not hard. But here's, here's the, the reason. Like, if, if we can't admit that we have sin in our life, if we can't admit that we're sinners, then do we need a Savior? We don't, do we? I mean, Romans 3.23 says, for, the wage, or for, or for, we are, for all have sinned to come short of the glory of God. Paul, when he writes Romans, says, listen, it's not a question of whether you are or you're not. He just says, listen, we all are. Let's just get to the point. We are all sinners. It's a level playing field. Three chapters later in Romans 6.23, Paul says, listen, the wages of sin, the wages of those sins in your life is death. See, if we come to the point where we can't admit that we're sinners, then we don't need a Savior. There's no reason that Jesus would have had to come, leave heaven, would have come to, to bear himself on a cross, would have had to die on a cross. There's no reason for that. Because we're, we're better, we're stronger, we're, we're smarter than God. But what's great about this message by Peter is this. While Peter talks about the Bible, while Peter talks about Jesus, while Peter talks about sin, Peter doesn't leave Jesus hanging on a cross. He stresses that last half of the message about the resurrection of Jesus. Listen, go over in your Bibles um, to 1 Corinthians. So a few chapters over, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And I will tell you this, the, the entire chapter, all 58 verses, is worthy of reading. It ought to be read. But, but here's the deal. Like, like we so often in this particular, this, this subject of, of Jesus' um, resurrection, we often just save it for, for Easter, for Easter Sunday. We celebrate that, that Sunday, and the rest of the year, we avoid it. We don't talk about it. It's, it's irrelevant or whatever. But Sunday, Easter Sunday, we do it. But, but listen, this is what Paul says about this. So, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, starting verse 12, says this. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and our faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. Verse 16 says, For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope, in this life only we are, of all people, most to be pitied. In Paul and his teaching there, he boils it down to this one action of Christ, this resurrection. And again, mind you, Peter's standing before this crowd of people some less than two months after Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection. And Christ, Jesus will spend the next 40 days after he comes back from the dead and he'll wander the earth, wander the area, wander with his disciples, spend time investing in them for 40 days, investing into his witnesses, those 120 people before his ascension. And Paul's saying, listen, if Jesus 
wasn't raised from the dead, if you cannot believe that, if you cannot believe that Jesus had died on the cross and that he was able to conquer death, if you cannot come to grips with that, if you cannot believe that, then everything's worthless. Your faith, there's no faith, it's worthless, it's garbage. This point of resurrection is so powerful. And I love how Peter again goes back and forth in the Bible and he goes and he, he quotes David, the psalmist. David would have been a hero for, for many of those boys. David was one of those guys that those kids heard stories about growing up. No doubt kids in the village streets back in those days would play David and Goliath. And he goes and begins to quote David and he says, listen, you know, David, and he, what's interesting in this is he doesn't refer to him as, as King David, but he refers to him as prophet. And these psalms that he quotes, Peter identifies those as being prophetic. And he backs up and says, listen, those psalms were not written about David. David wasn't the one who ascended to the right hand of God. It's interesting when he, in verse 34, when he's quoting Psalm, he says, the Lord said to my Lord, after it's already, already been identified that one of David's descendants, and David calls one of his descendants Lord. Like that's unheard of. Like in, in that culture, in that Jewish context, it was always the, the father that was honored. It wasn't the father honoring the son or grandson or whatever it is. And, and here, like David's going back and he's, he's placing honor to one of his upcoming descendants. And we, when we get into the New Testament, when we read the genealogy of Christ, we realize that Jesus came from the line of David, one of his descendants. And so as great as David was, Peter again points out and says, listen, David was awesome. He was great. But David died and he's buried and he's buried in the tomb over there. You can still go visit it. That's David. But Jesus, and again, I love how he goes back in verse 36, the one you crucified is risen. Folks, that whole concept of resurrection is so powerful. Prior to this situation, when we read in the New Testament, often when you read the, the word hell, the Greek word used there is Hades. Prior to the resurrection of Christ, going back to the Old Testament, um, you, you had this idea in which Hades was um, basically had two areas. See, Hades was a place where everyone would go. All who died went to Hades. But there was two compartments, if you will. There was one, Sheol, which was a place of torment. So when we today, when we think hell, we think of torment. We think of all the bad that will happen. Um, continual torment. That's Sheol. That's one compartment of Hades. But then there was a second compartment of Hades. Uh, the Bible refers to it as a place of paradise. That's where the Old Testament saints, upon their death, upon their last breath, would go. And the Bible refers to it sometimes as the bosom of Abraham, where Abraham would be there comforting those. It was a place of waiting. Here's the deal. Prior to Jesus' death and resurrection, the Old Testament, when we read about this, all throughout the Old Testament, we read about sacrifices, when they would sacrifice animals, right? That sacrifice could only cover up a sin, but it couldn't remove a sin. It couldn't, it couldn't blot out the sin. And so those people were not able to be in the presence of God until a sacrifice occurred. 
that could wipe out sin. And when Jesus, when it talks about there in this idea where he went into Hades, and he points out this idea, this term about um, not being abandoned in Hades, up in verse 27, Jesus didn't descend into Sheol, the place of torment. What he did was he descended into this place of paradise to free those captives, those who were waiting to bring them up to heaven, where Jesus today is sitting at the right hand of God. See, the resurrection story is so powerful. Even in our own lives, as we face things, as we go through our faith journey, we can't discount that power to, to, to even to, to, to remind ourselves of this Jesus who had the ability and the power to conquer death. And so in our life of chaos, as we're facing difficult situations, when it feels like there's no light at the end of the tunnel, don't forget about the hope of the resurrection. Don't forget about the power of a Savior. If he can conquer death, he can conquer anything. And so as Peter concludes his message, the Holy Spirit stirs. And the people respond with a question. So what do we do? What, what do we do? And Peter says, repent and be baptized. Repent. This idea of repentance, it's an old Bible term. The idea is this, that best definition that I've seen of repentance is to turn away from. So the idea is, as Peter's talking to those Jews that day, they're all sinners and they're all walking towards sin in their lives. And when Peter says repent, he's telling them to turn their back on that sin and to walk towards Jesus. Now listen, guys, there, there's times in our lives where we're going to stumble, we're going to fall, and, 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 and we drift towards sin, and we, we do our best to walk away from it, but, but, but stumbling blocks occur, and we trip, we fall. Repentance is not easy. It's hard. But folks, we don't have a cheap faith. The sacrifice that was given on our behalf was not cheap, was not easy. Jesus felt every lash on his back. Jesus felt every strike of the hammer. Jesus heard every taunt. Jesus felt and heard the spit. Jesus has called us to repent. Folks, listen. Whether we have two people in the room or 2,000 in the room, I will tell you this. I know whenever we are present, so is sin. Um, I believe this, that, that even in our lives, even in a small church like this, there are some who are wrestling with serious sin problems. We can justify it however we want to justify it. Folks, it's not just, trust me when I say this, I don't want you to think it's just the pastors are immune to this. Yeah, I, I, if you're not aware of this, which I don't know how you can with the internet and social media, this whole thing with um, this website called Ashley Madison, that encouraged affairs. I read a report shortly after that whole thing went out that over 400 pastors had to resign over that issue. That's a lot. So we all wrestle with sin. And there's times in our lives that we think we can hide our sin, but I promise you, we can't. Peter says to that crowd, 
as he points them in the face, as he looks them in the eyes, says, listen, you guys are the ones who crucified him, but he still loved you. He still died for you. And if you repent of your sins, then you can be with him forever. And 3,000 souls were saved that day. Folks, as we read that verse 41, it says, and so those who received his word were baptized and were added that day about 3,000 souls. You read the birth of the church. He calls the people. Again, I, I would underline this phrase before as he's telling them to repent. Verse 40 says this, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Friends and family, husbands, wives, mom and dad, kids. I don't know if there's a truer phrase right now in the Bible than to save yourself from this crooked generation. We see so much, so much in the world around us, so much. It's, I don't even hate using the word world because it's in our own backyards. It's in our schools, whether you go to a Christian school or a public school. We see it in our families. And if we're honest, we see it in ourselves. This spiritual warfare, we talked about in Daniel, in the rat race that we call life. I want you to prayerfully consider that, that phrase that Peter mentioned, to save yourself from this crooked generation. I don't want to get all quacky with you, but I'm going to for a second. In Peter's introduction to his message, he quotes Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. And in there, he, he talks about this Holy Spirit, he, and he talks about the last days, and he talks about this coming of the Holy Spirit, this outpouring of the Holy Spirit. That idea when he, he uses that, when Joel uses the word last days, it's in reference to the last days, the, the coming tribulation period, okay? Peter uses it as an example in his introduction to saying this same Holy Spirit that, that Joel was talking about, he arrived today. But in that passage, again, it's from Joel chapter 2, 28, verse 34, but 32, but, but in, if you're in Acts still, he says this, Acts 2, 17. And in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs in the earth below, blood and fire and the vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the greater and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. There's a lot in that statement. I don't know if you've walked into Lifeway and seen the books or you've seen the videos or Googled or whatever, but, but there's this thing called the four blood moons. And again, I'm not trying to be quacky, but this is... This is backed up with some historical data here. So NASA, which we're familiar with, says that when they came up with this term called tetrid, when, when four blood moons would occur in um, a close proximity, they would call it a tetrid. So going back from AD 1 all the way to um, present time, there have been 50 total tetrids. But then there's 
this one occurrence that's even a slightly different. It's when these four moons align with these Jewish feasts. And since A.D. 1492 to present day, it will have happened four times. That's pretty rare, isn't it? And this is what we've seen, that each time this has occurred, something major has happened to Israel or the Jewish people. Back in 1492, we know that Columbus sailed the ocean blue, right? Okay, so there was something major going on during that time period, and and history sometimes rewrites itself. And oftentimes we think that Queen Isabella and, and King Ferdinand were the ones who financed this trip for Columbus to come across the ocean. Um, he went to Spain to get the financing, um, and Spain was a Catholic stalwart. But the reality is this, it wasn't the king and queen who financed it. It was two extremely wealthy Jews. There is some who believe today that Christopher Columbus himself was Jewish. This goes in line with, in 1493, we have the Spanish Inquisition. Okay, and in there, the king and queen get nervous about how powerful the Jews are becoming. How, how wealthy, and at this time, they, had, they were the ones that were running the banks. They were much the, the business owners. In fact, they were the ones who were lending all the money. They controlled the finances, and they didn't like it. And so um, a Jesuit high priest got into the king and queen's ear and said, listen, we need to get rid of the Jews. They need to leave. We need to force them to become Catholics. And so they gave them a, a, a date and said, you either, by this date, you either need to leave our country or become Catholic, and if you don't do either, we're going to kill you. And so somewhere between 150,000 to 400,000 Jews leave Spain. 50,000 convert or supposedly convert. That same Jesuit high priest didn't believe that those were true conversions, so they began to inquire inquisition. And the way they did it was the torture. And the result was about 50,000 Jews were killed because they didn't truly convert. That was the first blood moon time frame. The next blood moon occurred in 1947-48. That's a a day in which we can, or a time in which we can remember in which Israel once again becomes a nation. A great time. From the point in which Peter preaches this message, he's in Jerusalem. Some 40 years after that message, Rome comes in, destroys the city, destroys the temple, and the Jews will be scattered abroad. And so from that time, A.D. 70 up until 1948, they're without a country. They're without a nation. They're without a home. The next tetrid, the next four moons occurred in A.D. 67, 68. And we remember that time as a time in which Israel regains Jerusalem. It's a great time. There's a cool story about that way in which they were able to gain Jerusalem. Maybe tonight we'll talk about that. But they gain it. And so here's where we get to today. We're in the midst of these four blood moons. Three have already occurred. And that fourth blood moon is tomorrow night. Now listen, I'm not saying that to scare us. I love um, that song that tested led us in, the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, I think is what it's called. In which we, when, as we were singing and, and as Jesus led and taught the disciples to pray, we, we were crying for our Lord to come, his kingdom to come. Guys, I don't, I don't know what the result is. I'm not saying tomorrow morning, after, once the blood moon comes out, the whole world turns upside down. I'll tell you this, though. I don't know how we can't look at the news and see events and things going on all around us to realize 
that the pump is primed and something big is going to happen. We can take that a lot of different ways, but, but I become more and more convinced of this every day. As we went through the book of Daniel, I told you, you cannot find America in prophecy. We are not there. We are not present. We are not this great, powerful nation that we are today, or at least we were before. We can't find that. We can, we can read that. We can find China. We can find, we can find Russia. We can find um, Iran. We can find these other places, but we cannot find America. And so that leads us to, to one of two things. Like something really bad happens to us. Uh, what a financial collapse, whatever, a tax, whatever. But something happens to us that destroys our, our once great power. Or great revival occurs. And when Christ raptures the church, there's so many Americans that are taking, taken home that just the sheer power of the country falls apart. But folks, in order for that great revival to occur, we have to do exactly what Peter said. We have to save ourselves from this crooked generation. We have to repent and accept Christ. Guys, I, believe, I, I, I honestly believe this. And I'm not trying to be wacky in, but I believe this. I believe that we are, we are staring at the point, and God has given us, Jesus has given us time after time after time to change our ways. But there will come a time when Jesus says, no more. Fools make a mock at God. And my heart is this, that, that great revival takes place. Great revival has to take place in my life first, in your life, before we can expect it to take place in others' lives. I, I pray that whether a blood moon changes everything tomorrow night or not, it's not the blood moon that does it. It's the hand who created the blood moon that allows it. My prayer for all of us is that we get serious about this and stop chasing everything out there. Because I will tell you this, everything out there, when it's all said and done, is useless. When we stand before God, he will not care how big our bank account was. He will not care what car we drove. He will not care how many houses we had or didn't have. He won't care how big our family was, how little. He won't care about that. All he's going to care about is what you did for him and how you were able to glorify him. That's it. But yet, folks, I am guilty of this too. We spent our whole lives trying to build an empire here for a measly, if we live to be 90 years old, for a measly 90 years, and we forget about eternity up there. And so I pray, I pray as we see God revealing himself in these days, I pray that as we go through the book of Acts, that we commit to him, that we truly repent from our sins and we follow him, knowing it will be hard, it will be difficult, but that, what, that's what God's called us to do. Tonight, I end with this. Tonight we have our first upper room. Um, it's not designed to be anything fancy. Um, all it is, we're going to come together, we're going to do Lord's Supper tonight, and we're going to pray. We're going to pray for our families, we're going to pray for what's going on in our lives, we're going to pray for our church, we're going to pray for our country, we're going to pray for the world that we live in. But we're going to pray. We're going to do this every month, whether it's just me by myself or the whole church or the whole neighborhood. It doesn't matter how many people come. We're going to pray. We're going to pray. We're going to pray. We're going to pray. And I hope that it's not just here, but it's at home. But we're going to start praying. We're going to pray that God uses us. Maybe God holds off the judgment 
that God allows us to be a tool, a vehicle in, in a revival in our country that we've not seen before. That's what we're going to be praying for until God changes that prayer. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this day. I thank you for all that we've done. Lord, um, so much, so much could be said this morning. Lord, I, I just ask that you, that you work in our lives, that you help us to remember how amazing you are, how, how much you, you really do love us. Help you, God, I pray that you help us to understand the opportunity that you've given us, that you've allowed us to partner with you to share the greatest story the world has ever known. Lord, in our way of being timid and sharing our faith, I pray that you empower us like you empowered Peter that day. Help us to remember to always go to your word. Help us to remember to build it always around you, to not avoid sin, to remember that that is part of it. Like if we can't admit that we're sinners, that we don't need you, and we're all wretched sinners in desperate need of a Savior. Help us to, to live in the power and the glory of your resurrection. God, save us from this crooked generation. Help us to repent from our sins and follow you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.